Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Lauren S. Hisrick. Lauren is the creator, executive producer, and showrunner of the Netflix original series, The Witcher, based on the book series by Andre Sapkowski. The Witcher Season 2 recently launched, and Witcher Seasons 1 and 2 are now on Netflix's top five shows of all time. Previously, Lauren has written scripts for TV, including The West Wing and Justice, as well as written and produced shows such as Parenthood, Do No Harm, Private Practice, Daredevil, The Defenders, and The Umbrella Academy. Lauren, we are really excited to have you back on the show. As we discussed before the podcast, I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was around the time of the first launch. How are you feeling? That's my first question, especially with Witcher Season 2 out the door. How are you feeling? Thank you. And thanks for having me back. It's always fun to have these conversations. How am I feeling? I am feeling tired right now. <laughs> you know, because the way that we, the way that we produce The Witcher, we are in, you know, writing and in prep while we're still on post in the prior season. So let's just say Witcher season two came out in December of 2021. We had actually already wrapped the season three writer's room by then. So, you know, starting in January, we rolled straight into prep of season three and we're excited to get going on that. But honestly, I can't, I cannot believe it's been so long since we spoke because, I mean, before season one came out, that would be, you know, probably late 2019. It feels like a decade ago at this point when you think about everything the world has been through, much less how many seasons of The Witcher have come out. You had mentioned the pandemic, all that stuff happened since we talked last time. Can you walk us through? What the production side of things, how did you go about getting that made during such an ambiguous and crazy time? I mean, I think that we, we kind of did what everyone else did, which is we wanted to get people back to work as soon as possible. But we knew that everything kind of had to shift in our industry because, you know, we are, I think one of the best things about film and television is that you work with the same people every day, you become a close, tight-knit family. And to suddenly say, you can't be in the same space, you must be far apart. You can't hang out socially at all. It was very, very different. And yet we also knew that getting back to a new normal was the best idea. You know, we had actually started shooting season two, let's say December 2019, season one came out. It was a huge success, far bigger, honestly, than any of us had anticipated in the best way possible. So we were already in, in pretty intense prep on season two at that point. And we started shooting in February of 2020. And so doing the math there, we shot for about three weeks before we shut down. And that, that was heartbreaking. You know, anyone who does this can tell you that three weeks is right about the point that you are hitting your stride. You know, the actors are, are really humming again. The crew is getting to know one another. You know, the people, the HODs, the people in my creative department, everyone is just finally, you know, getting their legs under them again. And then not just to shut down, but to shut down and send everyone back to their homes. I mean, I, I flew back to Los Angeles. People flew to their homes all over the world and not knowing when we could come back next. 
it was terrifying. I will say that there was a silver lining, which is that in those months off that we had, I think we took about almost a four-month shutdown. You know, it gave me a chance to go back through all of the scripts again and to sort of reassess the stories that we were telling and to make sure that we were telling them in the best way. I had a little bit more time to process fan response from season one to make sure that we were hitting the right things that fans loved and making sure that I was paying attention to the things that they didn't love. And I do believe that at the end of that first lockdown, when we started back to work, we started back to work in a stronger place creatively. And from there, we finished shooting... Let's see, we finished shooting season two in March of 2021. In all of that time, we only had one additional shutdown. We shut down for a week after, for our sense, too many of our crew were starting to test positive and we just wanted to protect everyone and make sure that everyone was safe. But it actually went, it went by pretty quickly and sort of went without a hitch. I think the good news is, is that all the protocols, everything that everyone was learning, they are preventative. We know that people are going to get COVID and really what we were trying to do is when people got COVID, to make sure that it didn't spread to the rest of the crew. And we felt really successful in that. And I think the crew felt incredibly taken care of and just so grateful that we could get back to making the show. We dove right into season two. We didn't do the usual intro where we talk about who you are and what you do. We definitely talked about that a couple of years ago. But like you said, it's been a couple of years. So maybe for the context of the audience, would you mind? I mentioned you're the showrunner and creator, but can you walk us through? I know it's a hard thing to say because you do so much. Can you walk us through? what some of those responsibilities are and what the role is to be a showrunner, just for the context of the audience so we can dive a little bit more granular into the making of season two. Of course, of course. I mean, as you said, it is a hard role to define. And in fact, what's really fascinating is that the idea of a showrunner is really an American conceit. And so even when I first moved to Europe and started producing the show here, first in Budapest and then in London, I had to explain over and over again what a showrunner was. You know, television here was still mostly run by directors, the way that films are in the US. And so, you know, at the very beginning, people were lovely to me, but sort of like, and what do you do here? So, you know, I think the the best way to summarize it is that I'm the creative leader of the show. You know, I start in the sort of, at the very sort of bottom of the foundation of what we do, which is the writer's room. You know, when I first wrote the pilot of The Witcher and sold it to Netflix, They were pretty quick to decide that they wanted to do it. So within about six weeks after that, we were already in a writer's room. At that point, my job is basically to sort of shape and guide the stories into the right place and into the sort of full season that I imagined. I actually went into that season with a really good idea of what I wanted to do, the short stories that I wanted to tell, and the structure of the season, which of course ended up being pretty controversial when it came out. But you know, that to me... That was something that I had experienced before. I had been a co-EP for so many years. I'd been the number two in a room. I had run the room several times when the showrunner was out or on location. So that felt very comfortable to me. I have to say though, when you go into prep, it's really when I started learning what this job was. And I have learned so much in the last... I mean, it's been four years now. And what I thought the job was probably the first time we talked and what I think the job is now are two totally different things. I would still say that I am the creative center of, of what we do. But I think now, I think now really it's much more of much more of an enterprise. And I love that that this idea that I had at the very beginning has actually come to fruition, which is that I've hired amazing department heads, an amazing sort of writing team that is on the ground with me that is helping produce in London. And I've hired them, I trust them, and I let them do their jobs. 
And what I'm there to do is to make sure that it's all consistent, that we stay within continuity, that the Witcher always remains the Witcher, that it's, it keeps the same spirit. But it is not my job to make every decision. I think for a long time, I really, this is so important for me to say because it's really changed how I view my job. I think for the longest time, all I wanted to do was prove that I was worthy of this job. You know, I was a 40 year old woman. I had never done this before. Certainly, I'd never written anything fantasy before. And so I thought, I have to work extra hard and I have to do everything and sort of grind myself into, into the ground in order to prove to my bosses at Netflix, in order to prove to, you know, fans that I deserve to be there. And, you know, that only lasts so long because then you are pulverized into the ground and that is not the best way to run a show. So at this point, I'm still here every day. I love it. I'm so wildly passionate about it. But what has happened is I'm, I get to watch now how passionate other people on my team are. You know, we have a crew, a daily crew of over 400 people. And I think every single one feels a piece of ownership over the show and feels like they get to bring their best ideas forward and that it is a collaboration. And I think now the skills that I've really honed going into this third year are how to be decisive, you know, how to make decisions quickly so that departments can move forward, how to also not hold too tightly to things. And if a bunch of other people believe one thing and I'm on the opposite side, that I have to I have to realize that perhaps they are right and I am wrong. But really to be a, I mean, this sounds silly, but to be a good leader, to be kind and to be respectful and, and to ask everyone that works with me to be the same. I feel like so much of my job these days is listening and supporting and caring. And I think that's why, I think that's why I'm so excited about this season is because it feels like I finally have settled into a routine where I know that I can succeed and I think that the show can succeed as a whole. Dialing back a little bit more as well. We talked about the renewal of season three, but for season two, since we last caught up, how did that come about? How did that decision get made? At what point? When did you find out? And what did that initial early transition look like from wrapping up what you were working on season one and then beginning pre-production for season two? That is probably, if I had to pinpoint the most chaotic part of this experience, it is exactly that moment that you were talking about. So basically, because The Witcher takes so long to shoot, it is a huge endeavor. We shoot over multiple countries, you know, and it's just a big show. It has a lot of stunts, has a lot of VFX. It takes a long time to get from conception to it actually being launched on the Netflix service. So even before the executives at Netflix know that the show is going to be a success, even before they have tested it at all, they need to take a gamble and decide whether or not they're going to have the season two writer's room open. And basically, that's what they did. We were still shooting season one when we started the season two writer's room. In fact, the writers of season two actually all flew to Budapest because that's where I was on the ground. And we conducted the first several weeks of the room there so that we could all get on the same page and that they could then fly back to Los Angeles, keep the room going, and I could wrap production in Budapest. I would not suggest doing that. (laughs) That is... That is one of the things that shifted between season two and season three, because there is no way to keep that many plates spinning or whatever, you know, bad cliche analogy you want to use. And at that point, Netflix didn't know if they were actually going to produce season two, but they needed to be ready to produce it if they felt like season one was going to be a success. And so I will 
never forget getting that phone call from Kelly Lubenbeel, who was my executive at Netflix then and is still my executive now. She's been on this whole journey with me. And she called, it would have been sort of fall 2019, right about the time that the season two writing room was wrapping to say that we were officially being picked up for season two. And they had such faith in the product at the time, and they really felt that it was going to resonate with audiences. And what I loved about that is that not only did it validate all of this hard work that we'd been doing and put the season two crew in such a mindset of like, yeah, we get to do this again. But I think for an audience, it's really helpful to hear that a studio is going to keep investing in a show, that you're not going to tune in for eight episodes, love it, and then never see it again. So even when fans came in or when a new audience came in in season one, they knew that there would at least be a season two. And that, that was really great. So in some ways, all of that chaos, all of that hard work, all of me trying to be in three different countries, because we were shooting in, in Budapest, in Hungary, we were in post in London, and the writer's room was in Los Angeles. So I've never gotten so many frequent flyer miles in my life. I was constantly bouncing back and forth. I always kind of felt like I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it was definitely worth it. We got a season two, but it also was a learning experience and we will never do it that way again. You mentioned the writer's room. How did the process of writing season two differ than season one? I know obviously there were some differences in how the show was structured. There was, I think, first season was a bit more timeline-wise structured differently chronologically. So how did you go about making those kind of decisions? And just in general, how was the writing process different? The writing process was, I'll admit, really tough in season two. I'd come into season one, into the writer's room, as I said, with a concept of where I wanted the season to end, where I wanted it to begin, and everything in between, all of the short stories, everything that I wanted to take from the books. And then obviously the writers came in with their own amazing ideas, and we collaborated, and it came to fruition. Season two was tough because we had... It had always been my intention to spend every season on more or less one of the books that Sapkowski wrote. And since we had covered so many of the short stories, I felt like it was time to move on to what is called the saga, which starts, you know, the more sort of the books that sort of are more serialized. And Blood of Elves is the first of those books. And it is a beautiful book. I will also say that not much happens in it. There is not a lot of huge action. There's not a lot of forward-moving plot. There is, it's really embedding you in the world and you get to meet all of the characters. You understand all of their relationships to one another. You really start to delve into the politics of the continent. But there are you know, entire chapters dedicated to you know, what Kaer Morin, the Witcher Keep, looks like or you know, how Yennefer would teach Ciri magic. But it felt sort of languid when we started to put it up on the board and say, okay, let's take this book and let's you know, decide how to break it up into eight episodes. That was what we first attempted to do and it simply did not work. And we realized very quickly that we needed a couple of things. One, we needed some kind of, frankly, some kind of story engine. One of the things that we thought could be really cool and ended up being what we did is to have a season-long monster as opposed to in season one, we had all of these episodic monsters that Geralt fought. Once we had that idea, we started thinking about how this monster could tie all of our characters together. So it wasn't just a foil or a foe for Geralt, but also could start to factor into Yennefer's life and Ciri's life. Speaking of Yennefer, she's not really in Blood of Elves until probably the last third of the book. Anya Chalatra, who plays Yennefer, was wildly popular in season one. That character, I think, resonated with so many fans, but especially women who were showing up to the show. 
And I knew that there would be a riot if we simply didn't have her in the series until episode six. So, you know, we sort of took all of these factors and we started thinking, how do we, how do we keep the spirit of Sapkowski's books while making sure that a television audience is going to stay engaged for eight episodes? And I think it was a controversial thing to do. You know, there were definitely hardcore fans of the books that felt like this wasn't the Witcher that they knew or the Witcher that they expected. I also think we drew in a much broader audience than we ever had before. I think a lot more people found the show accessible because it wasn't steeped in as much sort of really finite lore or infinite lore, sorry, sort of the minutiae. We spread out the storytelling and we made it a little bit more accessible. So, you know, it was a double-edged sword. I personally loved the season. I think it was such, it built on season one so much. I think that not having the timeline structure, which of course, I'm a fan of. But I think not having that, more fans were able to understand what was going on. So that's good. But I also think that we delved a little deeper into all of the characters. We had the chance to stop with all the pipe carrying and instead get into you know their relationships and sort of their start to peel back those emotional layers in them. So you know, overall, I think it's a very different spirit of a season than season one. What I can say is heading into season three now, You know, I think season three is a really wonderful blend of these two things. I think it is very close to book lore. It covers a book called The Time of Contempt, which is my absolute favorite book in the series. It's also a book that was wildly easy to adapt because it really is. It's like you're lighting a fuse in this world and things are just taking off and everything is activated. All characters are sort of, you know, running at their full speed. But It also is a season that I think will really appeal to people who are new to the Witcher franchise or who are still, you know, watch season one and two, but still haven't picked up the books or watched the video games because, because I think it's just, it is more active and the characters, the the events are bigger. Everything is slightly more beautiful and more explosive. And I just think it's a really, really good blend of the two. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. I would love to talk about the production side of things. Is there one story 
or moment or day from the production of season two that stands out to you? It could be bad. It could be good. I guess maybe a good one that you look back and say, wow, that's why I do what I do. Wow. There are, I say, wow, because there are so many of them. Gosh, let me think. Probably not days, but I can give you some moments. There was a moment in the finale. I had this crazy idea going into the finale of season two. And I look back up. I'm obsessed with the movie Labyrinth, the 1980s Jim Henson movie. It is like the foundation of my fantasy experience and my love of the genre. And I had this idea that we would put Siri in this place where she really was trapped between a fantasy world and the reality that she knew. And that there would be something so evocative and so enticing about this fantasy world that she would want to stay there forever and she'd be tempted to stay there forever, even if in her heart she knew it wasn't real. And I had said, you need to watch the scene from Labyrinth. You need to watch the scene where the Jennifer Connelly character, Sarah, goes into this trash dump and it looks like her room and she is tempted. Like every, everything she's ever loved is there. And she's tempted to stay. And as soon as she starts realizing that it's not real, and that in fact, she has this mission to go on, people to take care of, people to save, the room starts exploding into bits and pieces. And I went to the director and I said, watch this scene. This is a director named Ed Bazalgette. And Ed was like, this is not normally the, the type of movie that I would watch, sort of for inspiration. I was like, no, 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 you have to watch this scene. And I have to be honest, it is one of my favorite moments in the entire series when we have this beautiful scene where Siri has returned to her home in Sintra. We actually revisit the exact scene that was in season one. We brought back all of those actors to play those characters who had long, you know, long before died. And we recreated it. And we had Siri happy and like a happy, you know, joyous teenager. It was wonderful to see Freya Allen in that moment experiencing that as opposed to all of the crap that we had put her through the rest of the season in which you're training. And the reason that feels so special is because one, it felt like obviously this dream of something that I wanted to do. But two, it took me back to this place where, where we were shooting season one, episode one of season one. And to think how much everyone on the show had changed by then, how I had changed by then, how far we had come just watching that scene unfold, I got teary more than one time because just walking back onto that set again, which had long ago been destroyed, it was incredible. I think that's probably the thing that stands out most to me. Love that. And what about right now? You mentioned season three is getting renewed and something to look forward to. Where are you right now in the process of making that happen? And what does the next six months to a year look like for you? How are you ramping up for it? Wow. This is, well, I will say this. It is 7 p.m. right now in London. It is way dark outside. You yourself know we have rescheduled this podcast so many times because I would reach the end of a workday and say, either I'm still working or my head is a mess. I might not actually be able to use words by the time that we're speaking. We are wildly busy right now. I will say though, It's so great to be back in prep, which is where we are. It's great to be back in prep, back in London, back with largely the same team as we've had for the last two years. And to feel like we are finally becoming that well-oiled machine that I always dreamed of. My first show was The West Wing. I mean, I was so lucky to, as a 20-year-old, 
intern on a show and then be hired onto that show and be there until the very end was seven years of my life. And I left the West Wing feeling like, well, this is what a television show is. We all start together. We go for years and years and years. We all know each other. The show becomes slightly easier to make because we're all in the same rhythm. And that wasn't my experience after the West Wing. And I finally feel like that's this experience again, which is, you know, for me personally, I have a team of producers that I have now built over the last couple of years who are like my strength and my foundation here on the ground. Everyone has different responsibilities. Everyone covers for one another. We have a constant WhatsApp chain that is, you know, this meeting's running late, so I need someone to step in for me at this meeting. Everyone is, you know, we do a weekly meeting where we just all sort of break down what we're working on. Myself and Haley Hall is one of the writers. We are the only two writers of that group. You know, everyone has a specialty. And the day that they all got back to London a couple of weeks ago, and we're all in one office together, we popped a bottle of champagne and toasted and I was smiling ear to ear because that's what makes this good. I mean, people who want to be at work, people who are passionate, like that is what makes this experience great. And so season three is feeling really good. We start shooting, I probably can't say exactly, but we start shooting soon-ish. And then it's just, then we're just running the race throughout, you know, spring and summer and into fall. So it's great. It's really, really exciting. Before we go, would you mind if I ask you a few bonus questions? Of course. I'm excited. The first one will be the most random. You mentioned that you had a lot of frequent flyer miles from your experience working on the show and traveling a lot. If you could choose any place in the world, if you could take a vacation next week, where would you choose to use all these frequent flyer miles and go somewhere and take a little bit of a break? That is so easy for me (laughs) because I have this dream of going to the Maldives. I've never been to the Maldives. When you work in Europe, you find that everyone here in general travels a lot more, has been a lot more places. I think the US is so huge that when we travel, a lot of it is domestic travel. And the Maldives is one of those places that you start to hear like, oh, you know, I shot in the Maldives or, you know, I took a week long vacation in the Maldives. And so I finally Googled this mysterious place and it is everything I want. It is sun, it is beach, it is relaxation, it is water. I want to take my kids and a ton of books. And I want to lay there for a very long time and not do anything else. Love that. The next bonus question. This is a podcast for writers. So always have to ask this question. Currently where you are in your career, for those writers who are looking to break into the business, maybe one of the TV writers or showrunners, what is the one piece of advice you would give for getting their foot in the door? It's a great question. And honestly, it has changed a lot since I got my foot in the door. You know, at the time that I started on the West Wing, it was 1999. Basically, I was like, hey, I'm looking for an internship. And they were like, great, come on in. I answered phones. And then eventually I was like, I'd really like to come back and work here full time. They were like, great, graduate from college and come back. It felt so easy. It felt so achievable at that time. And now I have to tell you, it is so daunting to me that I will meet with writer's assistants or potential writer's assistants, writer's PAs, researchers, you know, and they all have, you know, they've all developed something. They've all sold something. They have multiple scripts. And I thought, you know, God, when I was a writer's PA, of course I had written stuff, but I didn't have a full television script. I knew nothing about television. I learned at the job. I learned from Aaron Sorkin. So that was, that was a pretty good education. 
So I think it's really stressful for people who are trying to break in right now because the sense is that you you basically already have had to become a writer and had success in order to then, you know, be in a position where you're sitting in a writer's room taking notes or, you know, you know, being the first one there in the morning to make the coffee and turn on the lights and make sure that the writers are comfortable. And I feel like that is such a conflict for our industry. You know, how do we expect people to be great when we haven't actually given them on the job training yet? So all of that said, I think, you know, there's all of the sort of normal things. I think obviously keep writing, know what you want to write, talk to your friends, ask to sit down with people who's, or, you know, right now actually ask to Zoom with people whose careers that you love. I still have calls at least probably once a week with someone who I've met from a friend or, you know, a family member has a cousin. And, you know, I just sit and try to talk to people who want to do what I do or what I have done. I think that actually encapsulated in that is the most important thing, which is to state what you want to do to as many people as possible. I think that one of the things that a lot of people are told is like, be willing to get in the industry in any way. Well, that's great, you know, and I do think that a lot of people end up, you know, in the mailroom in an agency and eventually move up and learn about the business. And that's wonderful. But I want to know if I'm hiring someone that they want to be a writer. If I'm hiring someone to sort of come into the writer's room as a support staff, I want you to be passionate about what we're going to do because it's my goal to always promote from within. And so, you know, I want you to be there to be learning the skills that I think that we all have to offer. So I think just being specific and telling as many people as you can what you want to do, what you're willing to do to get there, that is another big one. I think that obviously all bosses, all leaders should treat their support staff respectfully and wonderfully and again, mentor them as much as possible. I also do think that the people coming in as support staff should be willing to start at the bottom. Some of the greatest lessons I learned were from being a writer's assistant, sitting in the room, taking notes, learning how to build story, listening to these brilliant people pass back and forth ideas, how to collaborate, how to build on someone else's idea, how to say that you don't like something without being offensive. You know, I think all of those things, and certainly when I became a researcher, it was like, (laughs) my job is to basically provide the right information for you to craft a story. So I have to know how to craft a story to do that. It was the best education. So I think being willing to start at the bottom and seeing that you can learn something, even if it's just how to get along with a group of people that maybe you wouldn't hang out with outside the writer's room, but you're going to hang out with them every day for hours on end. Even if it's just learning social skills, it's still worth it. That was a roundabout answer. But I really do think that the way to succeed is to have the right attitude. That's really what it comes down to. Love that. My last question is for you. And I hope it's not too much of an existential question. But for you right now, you're obviously working on season three. And we're all waiting to see that. And obviously, for your career... Is it too early for you to start thinking about what the next five, 10 years holds for you? Where do you go from here being a showrunner for such a big, successful show? Have you thought through what's the milestone for you and how do you process that? Or do you just live in the moment of, hey, this is the next show and I'm just going to make this as good as possible? I think I'm more of a live in the moment type of person. Of course, you can't help but sort of project where you'll be in five years or 10 years. But the truth is, Five years ago, I didn't think I would be here. If someone had said to me five years ago, do you think that you'll be running a big Netflix fantasy show that features monsters and sword fights? 
I would have said no. So, you know, I do think that it really, for me, is about looking at every opportunity that's in front of me. And much like I said about breaking into the business, looking at those opportunities, grabbing them with both hands and falling in love with them. The thing that I did not expect about where I'm at right now, you know, I just wanted to write a good pilot. And then once that pilot was bought, I wanted to craft a good season. And then, you know, then you start to think about, okay, if that is successful, I'll write season two. Everything was about The Witcher. And actually, even just as I said that, the way that I refer to it now, the way that we all refer to it now is The Witcher Mothership. Because The Witcher has become much bigger than I ever anticipated. There's a much larger universe happening. You know, we have, we just finished production on our first live action spinoff. Our first anime movie has already come out. We're writing our second anime movie right now. There's another spinoff in the works. We're talking about a kids and family animated show. And of course, Witcher season three. And I did not expect to be here. So I'm going to enjoy it for a while. I also think that I've taken on a huge responsibility with this job. And I want to make sure that it gets my full attention until it doesn't need my full attention anymore, until it's either done or, you know, until I feel like I'm not the best person to tell these stories anymore. And then I would want that best person to step in. But right now it's just about, it's just about being here. And it's just about not being jaded, not thinking that I've outgrown this, just really enjoying where I'm at. Love that. Thank you, Lauren. Usually we ask if you want to plug anything. Obviously, The Witcher Season 2 is out now on Netflix. Is there anything else you want to just shout out? Any projects or websites or anything at all? No, I have no additional shout outs. Watch Netflix, watch season two, hold on for season three. No, I've got nothing there. Thank you again so much. It is always a pleasure to talk to you about the writing process. And it's incredibly humbling to hear from someone in your role to speak to where you're at in your career and give advice for aspiring writers. So as you mentioned, you know, we've been scheduling for a while, but it means a lot to finally make it happen. So thank you so much. And we hope that you can find time to get to Maldives, hopefully sooner than later. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you for having me back again. It's always great to chat with you. Thank you, Lauren. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.